Good evening, everyone. And thank you for joining us at the National Portrait Gallery for this very special event. I'm Wendy Wick-Reeves, Interim Director here at the Portrait Gallery, and it is my great privilege to welcome you tonight to this beautiful historic structure that our museum shares with the Smithsonian American Art Museum. In just a moment, we'll have remarks from Jack Watson, the chair of the National Portrait Gallery's commission, and Ron Schur, the artist commissioned to create this amazing portrait of General Powell that we're all so eager to see. And then we will unveil this painting hidden over there to my left. And that will be followed by a conversation here on stage between General Powell and Michelle Norris of NPR. Before we start, I'd like to take the opportunity to mark this moment as one that gets to the essence of what the National Portrait Gallery does. This museum illuminates the nation's history through people like General Powell and great portraiture like this work that will de debut tonight. Each new portrait we acquire provides us an opportunity to tell a new story. General Powell's life and career offers a very inspiring tale indeed, and we are thrilled that after tonight, we can share that story and this portrait with all visitors to our nation's capital. This commission could not have happened without the generosity of our friends at the Donald W. Reynolds Foundation and the many kind donors who contributed to the Mark Pactor Commissioning Fund. We are grateful to them all. I'd also like to thank General Powell for being a willing subject and Ron Scher for his artistry. The best portraits come from a true partnership between sitter and artist. And I think you will shortly agree with me that the Portrait Gallery has truly benefited from the collaboration between the two of you. Finally, I'd like to thank the Commission of the National Portrait Gallery, most of whom are here tonight, and the museum's President's Circle members for your ongoing support. Your generosity and engagement are essential to helping us realize our mission, and we're very pleased to welcome you tonight. Now I will turn to Jack Watson, Chair of the National Portrait Gallery Commission, a true leader, partner, and friend to this museum. I've gotten to an age where the glasses are necessary. <laughs> On behalf of the Commission of the Portrait Gallery, I want to welcome all of you to this very special occasion honoring General Colin Powell. I want to underscore a couple of the comments that Wendy just made. The role of the National Portrait Gallery is to tell America's story by telling stories through art and history and biography. Among all the great museums of the Smithsonian, the National Portrait Gallery has the unique mission of exploring and illuminating the American experience and the American identity. What does it mean to be an American? Where did we come from? How did we get here? Who are we? The remarkable story of General Colin Powell 
is one of the nation's great stories. This is a familiar story to you because we've all admired him so long, but as Wendy said, and as the program denotes, born in Harlem, educated in the public schools of New York City, graduated from the City College of New York, was commissioned a second lieutenant in the United States Army through the ROTC program, served two tours in Vietnam, and then the story gets too long to tell. <laughs> Ultimately rising to Commander U.S. Forces Command, and then to the pinnacle of the United States military establishment, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Colin Powell is unquestionably one of the most distinguished and honored military men of our time. But as all of you know, of course, the story doesn't end there. National Security Advisor for President Reagan, Secretary of State for President George W. Bush, subsequently statesman, diplomat, teacher, citizen of the world, in many ways, it's not an exaggeration to say that he is the Cincinnatus of our time, the citizen soldier. Please permit me a personal note. Colin and I met in 1977, when I was in the White House with President Carter, and Colin, who had just been made, I think, a full colonel, just been made a full colonel, was the senior military advisor, first to the Deputy Secretary of Defense, Charles Duncan, and then the Secretary of Defense, Harold Brown. I had numerous occasions to work with him in those years, usually in some crisis situation, like Three Mile Island, where we needed military support for something, or the eruption of Mount St. Helens, or the Mariel Harbor boat lift. But I now want to disclose to you, hoping that this won't get beyond the four walls of this room, <laughs> a little-known historical fact. And that is, quite simply put, Colin and I were personally responsible for the ratification of the Panama Canal Treaties. <laughs> Cyrus Vance and Jimmy Carter had very little to do with it. As Wendy noted, the commission, of which I have the honor and privilege of chairing of the National Portrait Gallery, commissions portraits of Americans who have made significant contributions to the culture and the history and the development of the, of the people of the United States as well as the, the country. We commissioned this portrait. Other portraits that we have commissioned just by way of example are Bill and Melinda Gates and Ethel Kennedy, Alice Waters, 
we are so honored to have him here, to have Alma here, his wife, to have Linda and Michael and Jane. We're sorry that Anne and Francis, his, Anne is his other daughter who couldn't be here with her husband Francis there in New York with two small children and couldn't make it. But we're honored to have the Powell family with us tonight. We put these portraits in the permanent collection of the portrait gallery. Because we want to remind and inform people, not only in the present generation, but for generations to come, not only Americans, but people all over the world, who some of our great people have been and are. Colin Powell is such a person. And I predict that his portrait, which will hang in the permanent collection and be on display for all to see, is going to inspire Americans for generations to come and others, not only with the man that he is, but with the extraordinary service to the nation that he rendered. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jack. At this point, I will ask Ron Schur to join me. Ron is an internationally known portrait artist who has painted, also painted the museum's portrait of President George H.W. Bush, which is hanging upstairs. His home base is Hong Kong, so we are particularly thankful to have him here with us tonight. Ron. Thank you very much, and good evening. Every single portrait I paint presents its own set of challenges, and this one of General Powell was no different, with the exception, however, that it was probably the most difficult and challenging of my career. How to represent in a single image a man whose life in the public eye spans decades and is so historically significant. There are countless photographs of General Powell. He is at once recognizable an icon of 20th, 21st century American history. This wasn't just about getting a likeness. While a photograph records a moment in time and can capture a likeness easily, a good painted portrait needs to go beyond and actually feel like the subject. Well, I must confess that in my efforts to capture General Powell's character, I made seemingly endless changes to the painting changes to the figure, changes to the background. In fact, I eventually even cut down the overall size of the canvas in an effort to strengthen the composition. It seemed that for every step forward, I took two steps back. After struggling for nearly 15 months, I was feeling quite frustrated with my inability to finish the portrait. And I remember asking my son, Alex, who was 19, by the way, at the time, and uh, I should say here that uh, Alex and my wife, Lois, are and have always been my two best critics. In any case, I asked Alex if he would take a look at the painting and give me some advice. He said, sure, and came into the room where I was working, took a look and said, I don't understand why you're so upset. 
I think it looks great. I said, well, no, then actually I don't think you do understand. I said, I said, this isn't a portrait of just anyone. It's a portrait of Colin Powell. You know how important he is. This portrait has to be worthy of the man. It should have a commanding presence, no pun intended. <laughs> it has to be strong. It has to be compelling. It has to be... Alex stopped me there and said, I think I know. It has to be Powell-full. <laughs> Truthfully, truthfully, something in his comment made me realize where I'd gone wrong. I'd become so completely sidetracked with the changes all over the canvas that I'd lost sight of the most important part. I decided it was time to go back with a much greater focus to try to capture that look in the general's eyes that had so impressed me during our sittings and work out from there. As a result, in less than two months, I felt I had finally come to the light at the end of the tunnel and had finished the painting. And, as luck would have it, I was again able to ask my son for his opinion as he was back in Hong Kong for a visit. He, Alex lives in Beijing, by the way. So do you think it's finally finished, I asked. This time, Alex took an, unusu an unusually long and careful look before giving me his opinion. He looked at the portrait up close, scrutinizing every detail, backed away as far as he could get, to see how it worked at a distance, even got up on a ladder to view General Powell's head at eye level. Finally, I said, well, come on, come on, the suspense is killing me. He turned to me and he said, I don't have any gripes. <laughs> <laughs> a thrilling commentary. I said, thank you. No, 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 he said, you know I love it. I'm just saying I don't see anything I would change. Really? So you think it's finished then? I can sign off? Absolutely, he said, don't touch a thing. But just as I was about to run out for a bottle of champagne, he walked up to the painting again, took another look, turned back to me and quickly added, then again, I think you should ask the pals that be. <laughs> so this evening, I would very much like to ask the pals that be and the powers that be all of you, in fact, in attendance, for thumbs up, thumbs down, and if I have had any success at all in producing a powerful portrait, then I shall certainly have to share credit with my son. Uh, before I relinquish the mic, however, I would like to take just a minute or two to thank some of the people who have helped me so much over the course of this project. First, Ms. Peggy Sifrino. Peggy is General Powell's principal assistant, and I really don't know where to begin. Peggy provided all the help I could ask for from sittings to expert advice to helping me move furniture in the general's office. Literally, soup to nuts. I can't thank you enough, Peggy, for everything, for everything you've done. Without you, the portrait, at least my portrait, would not be here tonight. To Brandon Fortune, curator at the, North, at the National Portrait Gallery, without you too, this portrait would not be here. You helped me every step of the way, right through to the frame and now this presentation. Thank you ever so much. I should say too that General Powell was kind enough to arrange for me to visit some of the places that have been so important to him throughout his career so that I could explore various, various options for the background of the portrait. So for the Pentagon, I would like to thank Edward V. Akaki, Deputy Chief of Protocol, Office of the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and John Shortle, Director for Joint History. 
for Fort McNair and the National War College. My deepest gratitude to Ms. Susan Lemke, National Defense University Special Collections Librarian, and Mr. Mark Piesel, Chief of Staff and Dean of Students of the National War College. At Joint Base Meyer-Henderson Hall, a special thanks to Ms. Marianne Hodges, Director of Public Affairs, Ms. D. Spellman, Director of Executive Management Housing Directorate, that's a mouthful, <laughs> and Mr. David Harriet, Senior Physical Security Specialist at Joint Base Meyer-Henderson Hall. To General Powell, sir, what can I say? I am so honored that you chose me to paint your portrait for the National Portrait Gallery, and it has been such a pleasure and privilege to be able to work with you and get to know you a bit. For as long as I can remember, I have been a huge fan of yours, and I simply cannot thank you enough for taking the time to get back in uniform and so graciously work with me during our sittings. But I must also say that I am still somewhat disappointed, upset, really, that you never ran for president back some years ago. <laughs> Tonight, though, I shall state publicly, for the record, that I forgive you. <laughs> just, jo just joking. <laughs> Believe me, it is not lost on me that I'm up here on stage speaking to some of the most notable and distinguished figures in America. So last but not least, my heartfelt thanks to all of you here this evening who have come to participate in this tribute honoring a truly great man and a truly extraordinary American, General Colin Luther Powell. Thank you so much, Ron. And I'm pleased to tell you that the moment we've all been eagerly awaiting has arrived. At this time, I would like to invite General Powell to come to the stage to join Ron Schur in unveiling the portrait. so much, gentlemen. And again, thanking, thank you for working together to create something remarkably powerful. The National Portrait Gallery is honored to showcase this work and to include General Powell among the individuals who have greatly influenced this nation's history and culture. Now I would like to invite to the stage Michelle Norris, the award-winning co-host of NPR's All Things Considered. We're delighted to have you here tonight to share with us your conversation with General Powell. Michelle? General Powell, 
You sure you don't want another moment to? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I feel like moment. we should trade places so you can. But this way, I, I get to speak to two of you. <laughs> well, congratulations, General, and congratulations to the Powell family. This is really all an uh, evening for all of you. Now, when we look at that, it might not be apparent immediately apparent where you are. You're at Fort McNair, and you chose to stand in a very particular place. Tell us why. This is the uh, front steps of the National War College, a part of the National Defense University at Fort McNair in Washington, D.C. And it was at a point in my life uh, where my life really went in a different direction as a soldier uh, when I attended the National War College in 1975, 1975-1976. And one of the reasons I went to the National War College as opposed to the Army War College or any other war college uh, is because of somebody who was in the room, General Julius Becton. Where are you, Julius? Julius was on the board. There he is. What are you doing in the back of the room? <laughs> Julius uh, was on the board that selected students that year, and when they were deciding what war college everybody should go to, Julius, being a graduate of the National War College and knowing me, took a look at my record and said, he's not going to the Army War College, he's going to the National War College. And so that's where I went. And it became a very, very important step in my career. And so when Ron was going around looking at different things, he, he and I had become pretty close by then and he realized the importance of this facility to me, this building to me. It's a marvelous building built in the early 20th century around 1903 and it is a classic building and quite beautiful, and I'm so pleased that Ron decided that this should be the background for the portrait. I had nothing to do with it. Once you give the guy all the pictures and the commission, you're at his mercy. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about the process, because this is really a wonderful opportunity to, you know, many people will see this portrait hanging here in the museum, but only a small number of us will know about how it came to be. How, you were here, and, and Ron is in Hong Kong, so yeah. you were only able to actually sit together a few times. About four times. And let me also say how, how uh, thankful I am to the National Portrait Gallery, to Jack Watson and the other commissioners, and to Ron. You know, people will come and see my picture, but what they would be seeing is Ron's artistry and his brilliance. Um, and Ron, I cannot thank you enough for what you have done to to capture this particular moment and to pay tribute to me, but by doing so, you pay tribute to your own, your own artistry, and I thank you for that again. When we started out, uh, and by the way, I have a portrait, a uh, State Department portrait of me as Secretary of State, and there's a portrait in the Pentagon of me as Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, but they had to do those. This one, <laughs> this one is really special. You didn't have to do it. <laughs> but, But when, uh, when the portrait gallery asked us to do this, and we uh, picked Ron, selected Ron because of his great reputation, uh, then they said, well, it's going to be a picture of you in uniform. In uniform? Yeah, in uniform. And so Ron had to see me in uniform. There was a problem. The uniform was hanging in a closet and had been hanging in a closet for about 17 years or so. And it was hanging there waiting for the last occasion I might wear it in a horizontal, not a vertical position. <laughs> and so I had the slightest idea of what this thing would look like once I put it back on. 
But um, I finally said, you can't avoid this any longer. See if it fits. <laughs> and so I put the uniform on and uh, in my office. And by heavens, it actually fit as long as I took a deep breath <laughs> and did not push my chest or stomach out in any particular way. The real problem we had was that Ron is such a perfectionist that he also wanted me to wear everything. He wanted the hat and he wanted to see what the shoes looked like. And so I pulled out these 17-year-old shoes and when I put them on, they disintegrated. <laughs> And I had to go to the Henderson Hall PX and buy a new pair of black <laughs> shoes, which we are also now saving for the horizontal occasion, which might have some time in the future. But other than that, it was, it, it was a very pleasant experience. I didn't have to sit like it was the 18th century where you freeze yourself for about four hours at a time. Uh, Ron got to know me, and, and I could sense from the questions he asked and the way in which we interacted with each other that he did get to know me during those four relatively short visits. And thanks to Peggy and her, her marvelous work, uh, the office was arranged to Ron's satisfaction. And I would guess he took a thousand pictures, Ron, would you say? At least a thousand photos from every different uh, direction, every lighting that was coming. Uh, as the light changed, he would change. And it turned out to be a very pleasant and uh, somewhat painless experience. And uh, I'm so pleased with the result. You know, when you look at a portrait like that, I imagine that you take measure of your life a bit. And we've heard about all of the amazing milestones in your life, the titles and the triumphs. But is some piece of you tonight reaching back to Kelly Avenue, to that, that neighborhood that you used to call Banana Kelly? Yeah, and there are some of my Banana Kelly uh, buddies here with me the, this evening from the old days. There are a lot of people here who touched my lives and who essentially guided me, mentored me, and helped me along the way. I dare not start naming them all. But I always uh, go back to the South Bronx. I always go back to the neighborhood in which I was raised, a wonderful immigrant neighborhood, um, people from all over the world. I didn't really know what a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant was till I left the Bronx and went to Columbus, Georgia, because we were all immigrants. We were all from somewhere else, or our family was. And it was just a wonderful upbringing. But many people have asked me uh, over the years, well, how did you come up out of that? How did you sort of emerge from this immigrant background, this rather not, we were not poor, but we were certainly low-income people. And how did you rise out of that and going through the public school system? Uh, well, one thing I have to give credit to is the New York public school system, and I have to give credit to my family that kept all of us cousins in play. And some of my cousins are here this evening. When I became chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, amusing, an amusing thing used to happen to me. Uh, I would go to foreign country for a meeting of other ministers and secretaries and chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff equivalent. And somebody would come up to me, this uh, happened in the year after I became appointed, General Powell, how are you? What year did you graduate from West Point? <laughs> I said, well, I didn't, I didn't go to West Point. I, I could never have gotten into West Point. I would have loved to, but I didn't go to West Point. Oh, well. And you must have gone to one of the great military schools. Was it VMI, or was it the Citadel, or was it Texas A&M? I said, no, when I, when I entered college, a black kid couldn't go to any of those schools. It was just about the time, a month or so, before Topeka versus Board of Education Topeka case. And so, uh, no, I, I couldn't go to those schools. Within a few years, that was allowed, but I couldn't. And so I went to the place that would let me in, the City College of New York. Uh, and I worked as hard as I could. I managed to finish, get my commission, 
And I entered the Army at a time when segregation was ending in the military, and the military was the most socially advanced element of American society. And so I entered the Army about four years after the last segregated unit was done away with in the Army, but the country, in certain parts of the country, was still segregated. And I still remember that when I entered, I had an obligation to do my best, of course, to be a good soldier. But I also had a, the most sincere obligation to those who went before me in the segregated world who never would have had the opportunity to become a National Security Advisor or General and never dreamed of becoming a Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I owed an obligation to them to do my very best and to represent uh, my country well, my background well. Uh, never forget that I'm a black person, uh, but I never let anybody call me the black Secretary of State or the black Chairman. I was the Chairman. There was only one. There was only one Secretary of State. I happened to be black, but that was incidental to who I had become, and I had become, uh, I had risen to those positions because the country had changed. And the country realized it was living a lie. And finally, in the early 60s, it looked in the mirror and said, we can't continue this way. And then the society started to open up and open avenues of opportunity, and I was on one of those avenues of opportunity. And it was my obligation to do the best I could. Um, and so, um, we live in such a wonderful country that immigrant kids, kids of all colors, of all ethnicities, have the option to go as far as their dreams and ambitions and willingness to work hard will take them. But it starts with getting a great education. So as part of my life, I've sort of gone back to the beginning, and I'm working at City College again now, uh, helping new kids come along. And they're all immigrants, they're all minority, and they all are hungry to do well in life. And Alma does the same thing with respect to younger kids through the foundation we created 15 years ago, America's Promise. And so, you know, life is a circle. And I'm, I'm so happy that I've been able to come back to the beginning. You talked about There's a joke. There's a joke I like to tell audiences, particularly young people. Uh, well, when you, were, when you were a kid growing up in the South Bronx, did you ever dream you are going to become Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and Secretary, say, yeah, there I was. <laughs> I was about 10 years old. And I was standing on the corner of Kelly and 163rd Street one day. And I said to myself, self, you're going to grow up, become chairman, and go in the National Portrait Gallery. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the point I make to young people, it, life doesn't happen that way. You know, nothing is ordained. Your, 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 your route begins when you start believing in yourself, believing in the country, working hard and getting your education. Then you're on your way. Your past is not your present. Your present is not your future. Just give it all you got. And that's what I was taught to do by my schooling and by the people in this audience who helped me along the way and my, by my family. Your, your family, your father in particular, used to refer to uh, something or someone called Dame Fortune. And Dame Fortune has been very, very good to you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, in, when, you, when you look at your career and some of the decisions that you've made, how much of it was due to careful planning? Because you're known as someone who is very much a planner. You don't walk into any room without being carefully prepared, I'm told. Um, and how much of it was, was also due to sort of the great galloping horse of opportunity arriving at just the right moment? Well, you always seize opportunities as they come along, but I'm, I am a fairly careful planner. It's part of my military training. 
Uh, you don't go into a battle that you haven't thought through or tried to figure out how we're going to solve this problem, how we're going to achieve victory, how we're going to minimize casualties, and what risks are going to arise, and what opportunities are going to present themselves. But uh, as I've said in my recent book, and I say very often, you study and you plan, but at the end of the day, you have to go on an instinct that says this is the right answer. But it is not a guess. It is an informed instinct. You gather all the information you can. You talk to people. You study things. And only then do you rely on your instinct to tell you, okay, pick something. It's time to do something. And that's pretty much how I've gone through life. Sometimes um, it has not been correct and I've failed. But failure is a part of life. Um, and what I also talk to young people about, and young people increasingly don't, don't seem to understand that failure is part of life. Mm. Don't let it tear you down. Just get over it. Learn from the failure and move on. And that's what I've always tried to do. I'm struck by how open and honest you are about some of the struggles that you've had in life and some of the, um, as you've referred to them, blots on, on your, your record. You write in your most recent book, It Works For Me, about um, your presentation to the UN Security Council. Mm -hmm. And you, in, in writing about it, you talk about how it's always with you. It's never really left you. It's something in that moment didn't work for you. Um, in, in being honest about that, why have you decided to be so honest about that in, in looking back? Because many people would, would run away from that. Well, first of all, I have a little sympathy for Susan Rice these days. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, she presented the information that was given to her by the intelligence community, and she presented it. Now she's being the keelhaul as a result of it. And I presented the information that was attested to by all 16 intelligence agencies. Uh, what I said before the UN to a large extent was said by the President in the State of the Union address. It was said by uh, Mr. Rumsfeld, Mr. Cheney, uh, Dr. Condi Rice, and the Congress four months before my speech accepted that information and passed a resolution uh, telling the President, if you feel you have to go to war, we support it. Uh, but nobody remembers any of that. It's the nature of this, this environment we live in in Washington. Everybody remembers the UN speech but you can never get the context fully disseminated again. And so it's a blot on my record, but uh, that's something I have to live with. But I have other blots on my record that we won't discuss tonight. <laughs> <laughs> a life is rich, as we know, if there are hills and valleys, ups and downs, um, sunshine and storms, in your case, desert storm, um, which it was no, in no way a blot on your record, but in, in fact, um, uh, quite a bright spot. But when you do look at those things, how do you move forward and take the lessons from them? What are the lessons? The, the lessons are, are fairly straightforward, the process is straightforward. What I, what I teach to, to students and to fellow officers, when you screwed up something, when something has gone wrong, don't look for scapegoats. What did you do wrong? What did you miss in the, in the equation? What did you fail to notice? And once you figure out what you did wrong, you correct yourself, take whatever actions you need to correct the organization. But once you've done that, you roll that failure up into a little ball and throw it over your shoulder and forget about it. You can't keep lingering on your failures or it'll hold you back. But I'm sure all of us know people who will come up to us and want to tell us about some terrible thing that happened 10, 15 years ago, and none of us really want to hear it. Uh, but they can't get over it. One of the stories that didn't go in my book, and it may go in another one, is a famous movie actress, Rosalind Russell. 
And uh, the reason it is in the book is that you've got to be of certain age to know who Rosalind Russell is. <laughs> but everybody in this room, as I look across the room, knows who Rosalind Russell is. She was a great actress in the 30s and 40s, and she did wonderful movies. And she was happily married with a child and not the usual Hollywood stereotype. And she had nothing but successes. And then she made a movie in the early 40s that was a total bomb. I mean, it was a stinker. And it got torn up by all of the, all of the critics. And somebody said, hey, well, Miss Russell, this is awful. Do you, think your, do you think your career's ended? How are you taking this? And she said, oh, my heavens, you don't understand. I want all parts of life. And failure is part of life. And if I hadn't experienced this, I wouldn't have experienced all of life. I'm glad it happened. Now I have a more complete life. And she went on, and she became Ani Mame, and became more famous than ever before. So that little story that I caught on television one day has always impressed me, that failure is a part of life. Uh, and you know, young people will say, you know, what, what happens when life is over? When life is over, that's part of life. And so you just take life as it comes, do the best you can, and be prepared for failures. Everybody fails in some way every day. One day in a, at a Japanese high school in Tokyo, a young girl uh, raised her hand uh, after my talk and said, General, are you ever afraid? I'm afraid every day. I'm worried about failing every day. I said, me too. We all are. The question is not, will you fail? Yes, you will. The question is, what will you do about it? Will you learn from your failure and move on? And that's what I've always tried to communicate with, with people. I've talked to many people in leadership positions in all kinds of places, and many of them describe the moment that they knew that they were meant for leadership. Did you have such a moment in, in your life when you realized that, that you could lead other people and that you could inspire people and influence people? When I, when I was in college in ROTC, and I have a, one, at least one of my ROTC classmates here, I suddenly realized that uh, I had a, a way of dealing with people that would inspire them and get them to do the right things. But uh, I never knew where that would take me. And I also had to have it develop. I had to be taught. I had to get advanced education. I had to get a master's degree. I had to go to the War College and other places in order to shape uh, my, my leadership style and uh, what I believed about leadership. And so I think leadership is born to some extent. You have to have a certain connection and empathy with people. But then it has to be developed. And you can teach it. You can improve on the basic instincts of leadership. But you can also find leaders who have that basic instinct and then don't know what to do with it and are failures. They think they're great leaders, but they're not. Um, they are just we think naming names leaders. tonight? Hmm? <laughs> you want names? No, I said, are we? <laughs> You're getting bad, you know that. <laughs> what is your, um, your proudest moment? Well, they're sitting in the front row, most of them. Um, one's missing. But, uh, and I get asked about questions like that all the time. What's your proudest moment? What was your worst uh, moment? And I, and I never answer that directly because it, to single out any one thing does a disservice to other things. Uh, and to single out all the good stuff without noting the bad stuff also is not right. Each and every one of us are a product of all of the good things and bad things that have happened to us, and it's kind of like calculus, the area under the curve. That's, that's who you are, everything. I learned as much from my bad experiences as I did from my, my good experiences. 
And people have said, well, what do you, you know, what do you want to be remembered for? I said, well, it's really not up to me. Others will do the remembering, but you know, hopefully, he was a good soldier. He, he served his country, and he had a great family, and uh, left behind a you know fair reputation. You can't leave this life with anything else but that that's worth anything. You've been a general and a diplomat. Did you feel that you were on a battlefield in both cases? Oh, you're always in a battlefield in this town. I don't care what you do. <laughs> you kid? What are you kidding me? <laughs> Usually from people like you. I mean, <laughs> 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 no, this is, uh, this, this, this is the NFL, this town, and uh, whether you're in politics or in diplomacy or uh, in government, uh, it's, it's a tough business. It's a battlefield, and uh, you plan for it to be a battlefield, and you assemble your forces. Uh, every, every year I talk to the White House Fellows class. Uh, I'm a White House Fellow 40 years ago, and I talk to every class every, ever since. And when I say to them, in, in this town that you're learning about as a fellow, no good idea succeeds merely because it is a good idea. If you have a good idea, you have to find others who believe in that idea with you. You have to find champions. So an idea has to be championed, and you have to assemble forces to that idea, or you will not succeed. You just can't have a good idea, and it works. The corollary of that is no bad idea dies simply because it is a bad idea. Uh, you need to find people who will stand up and say, this sucks. Uh, this is lousy. And let's kill it and put a stake through its heart. And it's hard to find wooden stakes in Washington to put in the hearts of bad ideas. And so Washington is a place where people rise, people fall, fall ideas rise, ideas fall. It's, it's a contact sport, uh, and if you can't take the contacts, if you can't take the hits, if you can't take uh, the occasional concussions, uh, you won't succeed in this town. Um, and you know, we're, we're also blessed in this town, even though we complain a lot about our government, we're blessed in this town to have so many, many people who are willing to run for office, uh, who found it their passion, who had the instinct for it, and uh, who have put themselves up for the kind of the kind of challenges they will face, the praise they will get, and the criticism they will get. Uh, but it's also the system that was designed by our founding fathers who have represented so well here in the National Portrait Gallery. Uh, and our founding fathers intended it to be this kind of a system where people have great ideas, are willing to fight for those ideas, and have ideas come into collision. But they also believe strongly something that is now lacking in our political system, that you have to compromise. And only through compromise can you gain a consensus that will allow you to move forward. And it has become more and more difficult to do that because of the information revolution that some of my friends here and I helped bring along, and because of uh, the, frankly, the nastiness that has inserted itself into our public discussion and our public debate. But you know what? Who's going to drive a stake through the heart of that? Those of us here, and as I say to my, all of my audiences, you know, don't wait for Superman to come. Obama isn't Superman, Romney isn't Superman. Oh, we got a super people, you people. And if you don't start standing up and pressing back on this stuff, it'll continue. So don't look in the other direction. It's up to us to stop it. Do you feel like you have a particular role to play in that, to help bring people together yeah, I, toward I, consensus? Yeah, I, I think I speak out from time to time. I don't live on the Sunday talk shows. You've got to be a senator to get on the Sunday talk shows. <laughs> But when I have something to say, when I think that something's out of tolerance, or when I think I, some, some, my, my fellow citizens want to hear me talk about an issue, as you may have noticed recently, I will do it. 
but I don't live to go on talk shows. This portrait will hang in this building in the permanent collection. People will walk past it while they are on their lunch hour. Armies of children wearing smelly tennis shoes will walk through the building looking at that and they'll look up at that man and they'll look in his eyes. And the thing that struck me in that portrait is that you appear to be looking directly at the person who is watching that portrait, which is a quality that you have always had. What do you want them to see? It's hard to tell what children a generation or two from now will be like or what they will see. First thing they will say is, who's that? <laughs> uh, I've got no illusions about that. What we did as part of this portrait is we wrote a short statement to go on a plaque. And we, we spent quite a bit of time on it to make sure that it captured the emotion we wanted. And if they're looking at that, they'll read it. And it says, son of immigrants, born in New York, modest background, worked hard, all the things that were said earlier. Uh, and I hope at the end they will walk away saying, gee, I'm kind of like that plaque at the beginning. And if he could do it, then why can't I? And if they come away with that, that'll make me a happy person. Thank you. Ready? I could talk to you all night, <laughs> but they did give me a deadline, and I'm in a business where deadlines mean there she something. Is. <laughs> Thank you very Thank much. Thank you, Michelle. Congratulations to you. Congratulations to you. Nicely done.